So again, this morning, church, we do begin this Old Testament book of Hosea. And on this book, one commentator I read this week started off his whole long commentary on this book of Hosea with this one short sentence, quote, Hosea is not an easy book. (laughs) And in many ways, I think that's very true. And I'm sure you thought that in that short, just two-verse scripture reading we all just heard. Right? Because even there, we heard that Hosea is supposed to take a wife of whoredom. Right? And then as the book goes on, there's these symbolic kids involved. Then there's a lot of other imagery. And in all that, there's a lot of talk of God's justice and judgment and of God's hope and love. And so putting all of that together, we can agree that this on the surface is not an easy book. And so in that commentary, just quoted, that commentator says a lot of that as well. But then he also, a paragraph later, goes on to say, quote, But though Hosea is difficult, it is also a great book. And then he continues, It surely afflicts the comfortable, which is true, but also, quote, it does comfort the afflicted. And and I love all that, and I think that's so helpful to all of us here at ECC as we start this message series together, because it is true that what we're about to see in Hosea in some ways is a hard book, right? There's a lot of topics on the surface that are difficult, such as Hosea marrying this wife of whoredom. But even more so, what's hard is the realities that such images like that represent, right? Meaning our awful sin and the right judgment that we do deserve, And so again, yes, in those ways, this book afflicts us who are just comfortable. Or as someone I read this week also said on the tough stuff in this book, quote, it almost seems as if Hosea relished the idea of shocking his audience into thinking outside the box. He wants to jar them loose from their careless way of thinking about themselves and God. And that's true. This book is going to jar us a bit because it it is in some ways difficult and uncomfortable. And yet, all that being the case, this book also is a huge comfort to us. To us who are afflicted, who realize that we are broken and sinners ourselves. And why? Well, because as our series subtitle says, as you can see in your bulletin, there's essentially two main topics in this book. Number one, sin and being unfaithful to God. And yes, hearing that is not comfortable. But then also, number two, the other main topic is God's love. God's great, redeeming, glorious, serious, unexpected love towards sinners. And that's why really the overarching single theme of this book, if we had to choose one, really is God's love. And that's why so many of these songs that we'll be singing and on that playlist, it's why they are about God's love. Because if we had to choose one, that really is the overarching theme of Hosea. But now that said, to be clear as we start this book, just as a warning, as for what's the most repeated theme that we're going to see in Hosea, it is definitely the idea of sin. Sin. And specifically, the most repeated theme in this Old Testament book is God's people, Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord, which applies to us and how on our own we're unfaithful to God, and especially applies to us as a church as a warning that we need to make sure that we don't turn from our God. And so the topic of sin is the most repeated theme here. It's the one we're going to see over and over But why does that theme of sin show up over and over? 
Well, here's the important part. It's not for its own sake. In the Bible, it's not that God merely or mainly just wants to show you and I that we're sinners. Instead, sin and sin's judgment is repeated over and over for the sake of showing more clearly God's love. Right? The repeated theme of sin is the dark backdrop, if you will, so we can more see and appreciate the brightness of God's love. Right? And that really does apply to us. We just think about it as we start this book. I mean, what does it actually mean that God loves us? Have you, have you ever really thought about that? Because when we say God loves us or God loves me or God is love, we all have something in mind. Right? So what does it mean? Is it, is it just that God's like a big nice guy in the sky who's more powerful than us? Or is he just this all-powerful one who happens to be watching us with a disposition towards our good? What does it actually mean and look like that God loves us? And on that, right, the thing is, we not only all have an idea of God's love in our mind when we think God is love, but since it's our idea and it's what we think, we often just think it's correct, right? We hear God is love or God is a loving God and boom, we just, we just think of something, right? We assume that his love is like this or his love is like that and we could be correct in our thinking or we could be incorrect, but then the point is, this, this book of Hosea comes in in the Old Testament. And what happens here is God, through Hosea, gives us a picture of what his love is. What it looks like. And it's a picture that maybe we wouldn't expect. Because as for the picture, it isn't God just being this nice, removed character in the sky. Nor is he just this all-powerful being who just smiles down at us. Instead... The biblical picture of God's love here in Hosea is us, right, being like a prostitute. Confused, lost, unfaithful, chasing our own security and happiness on our own apart from God. But then also, the picture here of God's love is God coming in and not taking our prostitution lightly, not just sweeping it under the rug, but also the picture is of Him really loving us. <laughs> And then committing to us forever. That, that's love. And that's part of why this book is so precious. Because in the Bible we have pictures, illustrations, ways of seeing what God's love is really like. And, like. and the picture above all now is Jesus' cross. Right? Because that cross, if you think about it, is a living illustration of how we're broken, so broken that the Son of God had to die for us. But the cross also is the clearest picture of that God really loves us. He loves us so much that the Son of God would come and die for us. And the same is true here in a way in Hosea. Because <laughs> what is God's love towards us? Well, first, it must really be put against the backdrop of our self-reliance and just sin and brokenness. Really, we, we need to feel that. And I hope that we all start feeling that more and more as we go throughout this book. But then God's love is him coming to such sinners and not ultimately casting it out, them out like we deserve, but taking them in as his own, loving them and committing to them forever. That's God's love. 
And so all that, just in a way, is a quick summary of what we're going to be seeing here in this series. And just so you know, as you can see in the message slide on the back of your bulletins, we actually aren't going to cover all of Hosea 1 through 14 in this series. That, that would take a really long, long time. Instead, in this book of Hosea, we're going to be in chapters 1 through 4 together as a church, and then chapter 14. And quickly, that's just because chapters 1 through 3 will cover that main illustration with Hosea's marriage. Then chapter 4 is going to give us a taste of the whole middle of the book. And then chapter 14 is the last chapter. And it's a great chapter on hoping in God's love. But all that said, that then brings us finally to just this morning. And here in these verses in Hosea 1, 1 and 2. And we're covering only these two verses to start because they are basically the introductory verses to this whole book. And as an outline for how we will cover these two verses, we're going to have three sections together this morning. Three sections. And as for what they are, first, we're first going to look at the historical background setting of Hosea and how it applies to us. And then second, we'll see what God did to Hosea in that historical setting and how that applies to us. And then third, in our biggest section, we're going to see and look more into detail at what God shockingly told Hosea to do and why. And how that applies to us. And so in summary, first, the historical setting in the book. Second, what God did to Hosea in that setting. And then third, what God told Hosea to do in that setting. And again, in all of that, we will really see how all of that relates and applies to us. And you probably heard that. I repeated that over and over. And I want to make that clear because I know. Right, this is the Old Testament. And Hosea is one of the minor prophets. And this book was primarily about Old Testament Israel and how they didn't obey. And so in all of that, I could understand that you might be sitting there right now and thinking, man, this is interesting, but this just won't apply to me in the same way as something in the New Testament or something that's about Jesus. But that's just not true. Because this still is purposefully in God's word. It is God's word. And so again, in each one of these sections, we're going to see how it really relates to us. But all that said, let's then begin our first section together, church. Here again, we're going to see the historical background setting of Hosea and how it applies to us. And for this, we'll just be in Hosea 1, verse 1. So look down at your Bibles and let's begin this book together. Hosea 1, 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Berai, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So as you, you can just tell, this verse here is just giving a little background on Hosea himself, and especially on the historical setting that Hosea wrote all this. And as for Hosea, we see he's, quote, the son of Beri, and, and honestly, though, nothing else is known of Beri except that he's Hosea's father. But then, in terms of the historical setting, you can see that's really the emphasis here. And you can see that in how Hosea lists a handful of kings by name. Some who reigned over the southern kingdom at the time of Judah and one who reigned over the northern kingdom of Israel. And Hosea lists all those kings for a few quick reasons. First and most simply, he lists them because the point is Hosea prophesied all this not just once, but for around 30 years. From around the 750s BC to around 720s BC during the time of all of these kings. And then second, this list of kings shows us that Hosea was one of the last prophets to prophesy to God's people before the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled by the Assyrians. And in fact, that's why you might know that Hosea is now often called the deathbed prophet to Israel. 
And so that's what we see in this list of kings. But then third and finally, as to this list, and perhaps most significant, honestly, for us, and what I think relates most to us, this list of kings is here because while you don't need to know all the kings themselves, what this list definitely does show us is that this was around 750 to 720 BC. And during these kings, this was a time of real material prosperity in Israel. But also, it was a time of prosperity that brought about spiritual decay. That's what that time frame really shows us. It was a time of material prosperity. Meaning, under these kings, Israel and Judah in history were flourishing outwardly. And most scholars will point out that they were flourishing most since the reigns of David and Solomon. And yet, it was also a time of deep spiritual deadness. And quickly, just so you can see how this comes up in Hosea itself. Turn with me, if you can, briefly to Hosea 10. Hosea 10. Just flip a few pages in the right to your Bible. Hosea 10, verses 1 through 3. Because this is just a sample of, to, to show that what we're talking about. But it's helpful to see for yourself. So if you can, Hosea 10, verses 1 through 3. And now here in these three verses, notice what Hosea says. But especially note the themes of prosperity but spiritual decay. Hosea 10 verses 1 through 3. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit has, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? So notice, Israel is luxurious. The country has improved. The people are living in increase. But, but what are they doing with that prosperity? Well, in verse 1, they're building more altars. Meaning, sure, they haven't actually forsaken the Lord as their God. But they're also building other places of worship to other gods. And then at the beginning of verse 2, although their outside is improved, quote, their heart is false. But finally here, and I think biggest of all, and biggest of all, honestly, for us, in, in our prosperous America and in our overall comfortable American church we live in, notice, notice verse 3, Israel is so luxurious and comfortable that they then said, quote, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And here's the big part. And a king, what could he do for us? <laughs> And that's huge. And that's why I really want to do a whole first section here on this historical background of Hosea. Because yes, to start this book, Hosea lists all these kings and it gives us a date of when this was written. But even more for us, this date, these dates show us what was really going on back then in history. And what was really going on? Well, well yes, the people were sinful. Right? And we know that because as we've said, this book is about their sin, our sin, and God's love. And yet what's so important for us to understand is we may hear they were really sinful back then or that we're really sinful and we might think that things must have then looked really bleak. Right? We might think the nation was really sinful. We might hear that and therefore think that it looked like some sort of dystopian movie or something. But in reality, that wasn't the case at all. Because the nation of Israel looked great. 
Outwardly, they were luxurious, prospering. They were improving. People were thriving. And yet, they really weren't. And why? Well, because they were worshiping other gods and their prosperity. And because other places in Hosea tell us they were committing injustice toward other people in their prosperity. So they weren't loving God, loving people. And overall, here's the big point. They weren't doing it with this fist in God's face explicit rebellion against them. But instead, their attitude was, sure, the Lord is our God, but we have other gods too. And even more so, their deep-rooted attitude was, what, what even could a king, what even could God do for us? Meaning, we don't need him. We don't need to be ruled. We've got this. We're okay. And, and that's a huge application and a huge warning to us, isn't it? Because again, we can think of the imagery of our sin being like prostitution and think that it's this outwardly massive and obvious looking thing. And it is so to God and it should be to you and me. But in reality, sin outwardly often doesn't look so bad. It can happen in such prosperity. It often happens in such prosperity. And outwardly, it doesn't look bad at all. Because sin at its root is just wanting little to do with God. It's wanting to, do your, wanting to be your own God. It's just simple pride. And again, it doesn't look that bad. And so what's the big deal? But this book exists because they needed and you and I need to be woken up to the reality of God and how a rebellion truly is a big deal. Which is perhaps why, and one last thing on this section, think about it. This is perhaps why, in this historical setting that we now understand, it's probably why God didn't just send another prophet to simply speak to the people. But instead, he also had Hosea do this crazy imagery of marrying a prostitute. Because again, the goal was to shock them a little bit. And to shock us a bit. Because although we may in some ways be materially prosperous and comfortable church, that doesn't mean anything about our hearts. That doesn't mean anything about our hoping and really trusting in God. And not only that, but often it's those external comforts that make us think God's not that important. I've got this. But that just isn't true. We do, we do need God. He's God. We're the sinners. And God is great and does deserve honor. But not only that, but taking the theme of God's love here in Hosea, the truth also is that God's love is actually better than our material prosperity as well. So that's our first section together. But that now leads us to our second section. This will be by far our shortest. And so if you're still in Hosea 10, you can go back now to Hosea chapter 1. Our second section here. And for this, we're going to now see what God did to Hosea in this historical setting and how it relates to us. And for this, we're going to read actually verse 1 all over again, plus though the first couple phrases in verse 2. So look down at your Bible, Hosea 1.1 in the beginning of verse 2. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, and we'll stop right there. So, so you, you might be wondering what I mean by what God did to Hosea in this setting. 
And the answer to that is the reason I think this should be its own section, if you will, this morning, is because notice for yourself what's in God's word there three times in a short intro to this book. Because in verse 1, this whole book actually starts with the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. And then in verse 2, that verse starts with when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. And then for a third time, in verse 2, it says the Lord said to Hosea. And now we often, I know, read those and kind of rush past those phrases. But, if, but you can see it for yourself. That is actually emphasized and repeated here in God's word. Right? God's word apparently, Yahweh's actual speech came to Hosea in verse 1. And then the living God spoke through Hosea in verse 2. And then he speaks to Hosea in verse 2. And I know in some ways that's, that's very basic. But but I want to point that out and make it clear because that then means that in history, the Israelites were living in luxury and wanting little to do with God. But then what did God do in that context? Well, the living God spoke to and through this Hosea, the son of Beri. Which means, to bring this home to us right now, it means that this book isn't some random nice story or tale. But rather, this situation really happened in history and God himself really spoke to and through Hosea into that situation in history. And now, how exactly did the living God speak to Hosea? We, we don't know. But what we do know is that when Hosea spoke these things, it wasn't mainly Hosea. <laughs> rather, it was God himself speaking through Hosea. That's, that's three times here. And that, by the way, just as a quick side note, just so you know, is the biblical definition, I hope you know, of prophet and prophecy. A prophet and prophecy wasn't someone, just to be clear, who said something that they thought may have some of God's words in it. Instead, a prophet, by definition in God's word, is what we see here in verses 1 and 2. God's very perfect actual word comes to them and somehow he speaks to them and therefore when they speak, it is God speaking through them. And that's why, if you think about it, prophets often prefaced what they said with, thus says the Lord. (laughs) Because when an actual prophet in the Bible speaks, when prophecy really happens, it is God himself speaking full stop. And so that's, that's the second section, what God did in this setting. And again, that matters to you and me because these really are God's words then. And this illustration is also God's illustration as well. And that means that God himself is the one then who wants us to see in this marriage of Hosea and in this book the reality of our sin and the reality of his love. It's not Hosea, it's not me who mainly wants us to see that. It is God himself. Let me say one last way. These two verses show us that this whole book is God's message and God's illustration about our sin and his love. So that's the second section, but that now finally leads us to our third and honestly probably most important section. So all that in some ways is basic introduction to this whole book, but that then brings us to the famous and shocking thing. that God told Hosea to do and why. And for this, we'll be in all of verse 2 now. We won't read verse 3 because that's where the story starts. We'll pick up there next week. But in verse 2, this is God's first words to Hosea. And notice what he says. Hosea 1 verse 2. When the word 
When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So there is a lot in there and honestly more than I thought at first before uh, studying in preparation for this. But the, the idea here itself is pretty plain because Hosea, as you can see in some way, is to take a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom. And why? Well, for because the land, meaning the nation itself, commits great whoredom against the Lord. And so everyone agrees Hosea is to do this as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness. And yet what makes this a little more complex is actually how we should interpret that wife of whoredom and children of whoredom phrases. And so what's going on there? And to be honest, commentators and scholars have a handful of main options here. Options ranging from her being someone who wasn't unfaithful or a prostitute at first, but the Bible is calling her that because of how she'll act later. Or some people take the idea that she was only a spiritual prostitute, meaning she only worshipped other gods. She wasn't a physical prostitute. Or some people even say that Hosea didn't really take a wife, but this was just all symbolic vision to him. And then there's some other, honestly, weird options as well. But in short, I think the simplest and best option for us, and test this always for yourself, is to take this at its plainest meaning here. And that's that Hosea himself was commanded to marry someone who was literally of whoredom, meaning at the time she was a prostitute. And, and this may be a bit surprising to you, I think that when Hosea married her and took her under his wings, he also took with him and under his wings the children she already had through her prostitution. And then yes, Hosea is going to have her, his own kids with her as well. But when he married her, she had kids from her prostitution already. And so I think that's what's going on, on here. But now quickly, let me just share with you why I think that. That he was told to marry a literal prostitute and also take her kids that she already had. Because this has implications for how we interpret the book. So first, as to why she was a literal prostitute. Well, to begin, just so you know, the biggest argument against why people think that is because they think that if Hosea married an actual prostitute back then, then that would have disqualified him to be a prophet. That's what people think. But in reality, I don't think that's necessary. And in fact, as I'll share later in the message, I actually think that his marriage here qualified him in a unique way to be a prophet. But more on that in a bit. But more important than that, the reason why I think she's an actual prostitute already is because the literal Hebrew here is, quote, take a wife of whoredom. Which plainly would read taking her who was already of whoredom. And that fits this picture really well because the point is, God himself is married to his people Israel who are acting unfaithfully already. And so I think that's why Hosea actually did marry a literal prostitute at the time. But you may wonder, but why did he take her kids that she already had as well? And in answer to that, look again really closely at verse 2. Verse 2, because there, although the ESV puts that word have there, with have children of prostitution. If you have the NASB or something, you'll see it's in italics because the reality is in the Hebrew, that word have is not actually there. They put that because it is true in verse 3, Hosea is going to have children with Gomer. But before that, in reality, verse 2 most literally in the Hebrew just reads this. Take to yourself a wife of whoredom and children of whoredom. Which just plainly makes it sound like he's taking her and the children that she already had as well. Children who were of whoredom. 
And that matters, just so you know, because the fact actually that he took her children that she already had really further supports this illustration as well. Because most specifically then, and this applies to you and me, most specifically the imagery then in this marriage is number one, that yes, God is married to an unfaithful spouse like a prostitute. And at the time, that's Israel. And just like we on our own have to be careful of our own unfaithfulness to God. But not only that, then number two, the imagery here is that their and our prostitution and unfaithfulness to God has effects. It has results like children. And, and that's why believing that Hosea took Gomer and her children is actually significant. Because while Gomer herself, some say, represents Israel as a whole, and especially Israel's leaders in this book, as we'll see, the children that Gomer already had represent the result of Israel's unfaithfulness. Just like you and I aren't only unfaithful to the Lord, but our sin has effects and results. And so beautifully, the point is, Hosea is both to take her and the effects of her unfaithfulness, just like our God takes upon himself us and the results of our unfaithfulness. And so in sum, that's then the answer to what Hosea was shockingly told to do. But, but one last thing on this before we move to why he was told to do this. And so he was told to, number one, take a wife of whoredom. Number two, take her children. But then finally, and really importantly, number three, he was told to love her. Right, to really love her. Right, we, we see that hinted at here in the fact that he's supposed to take her, not just in, but as his wife. And then that is definitely supported later in this book, especially in chapters 2 and 3, where Isaiah is told to speak tenderly to her and to allure her, even after Gomer later on keeps being unfaithful to him. And so that's really what he was told to do. Because Hosea, if you think about it, wasn't told to begrudgingly go and take Gomer and her children in. Instead, he's told to, to love her, love them as his wife and be committed to her. And why? Well, because the living God doesn't begrudgingly take his people, but he really commits to and loves his people. And, and so that's what Hosea is told to do in verse 2. But now the question is, but why? Right back then, why? Why for us? And, and that is the biggest question. And the answer to that question, of course, is it's to symbolize Israel's and our sin and God's love. And that's why. And so we see that even in verse 2. But we can helpfully break that down even more. So why did God really have Hosea do this? Why is this in our Bibles? And so yes, it's a shocking symbol of both sin and God's love. But, but thinking of this picture and this analogy here even more. And this, to be honest, is perhaps the best thing I, I read this week, and it was in almost every commentary, concerning as to why God told Hosea to do this. Just think with me concerning what this was really like. Meaning, think about for Hosea and for the watching Israelites, what this picture that God set up here was really like. Because what was it like? Well, it wasn't some one-time thing. Right, like some other prophets' pictures. Meaning, for example, there are other illustrations in the Old Testament from prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel where they're told to do things, but they're mainly one-time or briefer things to symbolize something. Right, you can think of that like Jeremiah going one time and shattering jars to show that Israel is broken. But the picture in Hosea wasn't like that. Instead, what was this picture like? Well, it was a marriage. 
a daily, continual, experienced marriage. And it was an ongoing picture and one which for Hosea would make him see not just a simple one-time illustration of sin and love, but this is something that he experienced every single day. And this is something that the Israelites could see every single day. And this is something where Hosea would even feel heartbreak when Gomer would be unfaithful to him. But it's also something where he would show such love when he'd keep taking her back. And in short, that's really why God, I think, had Hosea do this. Because this means for Hosea and for the people of Israel and for you and I as we read about this, it means we shouldn't just see this and think sin is like prostitution and yet God loves us. That, yes, absolutely, that is true. But even more so, we should think our sin on our own is like an ongoing thing. Meaning, we're unfaithful, and it's not a one-time unfaithfulness like we just happened to make a little mistake. Instead, it's like unfaithful prostitution. And so we should see that about our sin, but then also, on the beautiful flip side, we should think, and God's love isn't a one-time thing either. (laughs) Instead, like a husband with a spouse, his love isn't just a declaration. He doesn't just say, I love you. It isn't just a one-time feeling, but rather just as Hosea took in and continually loved Gomer and her children day in and day out, feeling loving jealousy for her and even grief because of her sins, but still loving her, the point is, so God loves us. (laughs) He is married to his people. He sees all of their sins. He takes them all and through it all, he loves us. And and that in itself is a beautiful picture, isn't it? It, It's a serious picture. It is a serious picture because it shows us that our sin isn't some static thing. Meaning our sin isn't like only a list of wrongs on a sheet. And if you hear anything this morning, I hope you hear this. Our sin isn't just a list of wrongs on a sheet. Rather, our sin is a real relational reality between us and the living God. The God who made us. And so our sin isn't static But neither is God's love. That's the point. God truly loves us, his people in Christ, and his love is a continual, real, relational reality towards us. It's a marriage. We're on our own. Yes, we are sinners, but he takes us in, and he deeply, continually loves us. And that's why, just one last thing in all this, it's why, as I hinted at earlier, Actually, and this is so cool, it's why I said that Hosea marrying a prostitute and taking her children in actually and amazingly is what in a unique way doesn't disqualify him to be a prophet, but actually qualifies him to speak for Yahweh, to be Yahweh's prophet. And I love this. And to be clear, I didn't make this up. This is something I read this week. But instead, one commentary said this and made this profound point. It's so helpful. Because remember, if you're just trying to interpret this book, so many people think that Hosea couldn't have married an actual prostitute because then he couldn't speak for Yahweh because people would look so down on that. But somebody I read this week said this, quote, Hosea's experience with promiscuous Gomer has legitimated his call to be Yahweh's prophet. What many would consider a disqualification for his office serves in this case for his credentials. And then here's the big line. He continues, quote, 
This is because Yahweh and Hosea have the same, same shared experience, that of marriage to unfaithful spouse. And that's the point. And it's such a cool picture because again, just think of Hosea actually doing this. I think about that back then seeing this prophet go and marry a prostitute and take her and her children into his family and love them. And see and imagine seeing him do this, not just as a one-time thing to make a point and then canceling the marriage the next day, but imagine seeing him actually marry her and know her and love her and take care of her and her children. And thinking and think of him doing that to Gomer even after she's unfaithful to him. And think of all the experiences you'd see with that. And think of all the experience that, experiences that Hosea felt living that. And then take all of that and think that's us and our God. God. God sees all of our sins. They do, in a sense, grieve him, but also God truly loves us. God is love. Day in and day out in this marriage with his people in Christ. He really loves us. He loves you. He loves me. Not because we're so lovely. We aren't. But because God is love. <laughs> and so that is the beginning of this book, Church. That's the historical setting. That's how God spoke to and through Hosea and how he now speaks to us. And that's what God told Hosea to do and why. But that all now finally, as we close, brings us to one last thing that we do need to say about this book. And so that's Hosea, but also, you know what's so amazing to think about? Well, it's the fact that this message of Hosea, also in a nutshell, is also the message of Jesus. Right, Hosea's message, when you think about it, is essentially Jesus' message. It's even a taste of the gospel of Jesus. Because think about it, what was Jesus' message when he came 2,000 years ago, 700 years after Hosea? Well, Jesus' message, to be clear, wasn't merely love, just a broad love. Love was and is his main theme, amen. But instead, Jesus actually talked a lot about judgment. Jesus is the one in the Bible, I hope you know, who talked about the reality of hell and love, though, but he talked about it more than any other person in the Bible, right? And Jesus talked about God's judgment to all people as we're sinners, but he especially talked it to people who confessed to be God's people. People like the Pharisees who outwardly looked so good, but inwardly weren't. And so that is a big part of Jesus's message, just like that's a lot of Hosea. But then also, what was Jesus's ultimate answer and response to all that? Well, yes, it included warnings of judgment and the seriousness of sin, but also, Jesus' message was and is about such love. It's about the Father welcoming gladly prodigals home. It included Jesus himself weeping for rebellious Jerusalem. It included Jesus telling God's people to come back. It included him telling the world to hope in God's saving love. And then above all, it included him loving his bride so much that he actually went and laid down his life for her. And so that is Jesus' message. That's, that's our gospel. And in short, that is so much of this message of Hosea. We're sinners. We are rebels on our home. We think we're so great sometimes on the outside. And we may even be comfortable and somewhat prosperous. But on the inside, we know we're unfaithful. But God really loves us in Christ. Our God is love. 
And his love isn't some fake sentiment, but it's a real thing we don't deserve. It's a marriage with us, his people. It's like Hosea coming, taking a prostitute and her children, really loving them. And it's especially like Jesus knowing his bride, seeing her sins, loving his bride, and dying for his bride. That's us, church. That's our God. And we will keep seeing that more and more throughout this book of Hosea. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.